Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 29. Now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes and immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. In this chapter, we've looked at the parable of the vineyard in verses 1 through 16 and we saw the prayer for glory in verses 17 through 28 and now we see the, the miracles of healings in verses 29 through 34. I use the term healings quite specifically because we know that both men are healed. Remember where Jesus is. He's on the road to Jerusalem. And on this road leading out of Jericho, it heads up to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to hear the cries of two blind men. On that road are Christ's disciples and what the text calls a multitude. A crowd. Remember, Jesus is on a mission. Remember that Jesus is on a mission that he's already disclosed, that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be taken by both Jew and Gentile, he's going to be killed, he's going to come back to life. He has literally weeks to live. One third of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is devoted to the last week of, of Jesus' life. And so again, I want you to put that in its proper perspective because each and every one of you are on the clock, whether you know it or not. The difference between what Jesus is doing and what you're doing is you don't always know how much time you have left. But make no mistake about it. It's a finite amount of time. With weeks to live, Jesus is still going to exercise compassion. He's going to perform a great miracle. And like I said, and like so many other things in the New Testament, it becomes a type and a picture of our own salvation. The cries of the blind men are met with condemnation by the crowds in verse 31. It's met with compassion by Jesus in verse 34. The crowd tries to stop the blind men, but they continue to cry even louder to open up their eyes. And the blind men aren't healed simply by prayer, willpower, desperation, but their prayers and their desperation is going to provide Jesus with an opportunity 
to exercise his compassion and touch them and heal them. Evidence is given that Jesus doesn't simply open their eyes. But it would appear that we can learn from the text that he opened their hearts and opened their minds. Because according to verse 34, they will follow Jesus on that road to Jericho, up from Jericho to Jerusalem. And again, the Lord is full of mercy and compassion. And we might think that God is distracted, that he's preoccupied, that he's simply too busy to pause. And to personally pay attention to our circumstance. John MacArthur rightly suggests that Jesus was never in so much agony himself. That he was insensitive to the agony of those who were around him. And that's exactly what's happened. His mind is preoccupied. His heart is determined. His circumstances are fixed, but he will pause for a moment to help. Look at the cry of the blind men in verse 29. Look what it says. Now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. Those of you who are, again, even remotely familiar with the Middle East and and the Bible understand that Jericho is a very ancient city. It's some 15 miles from Jerusalem as the crow flies, but you can't get from Jericho to Jerusalem as the crow flies unless you're a crow or unless you have a plane or a helicopter. There's a a road that winds from Jericho and it makes its way to Jerusalem and the road elevates ever so slowly and continually for those 15 miles so that if you're on this journey, the 15 miles feel like 45 miles. I've been to this city of Jericho several times over the years, but it's a city that's often left out of the tours now because it's largely controlled by the Palestinian Authority. But in in antiquity, the, the city was called the City of Roses. And in the time of Jesus, there were really two Jerichos. There was the ancient Jericho, and there was the new Jericho. If you've ever been to a modern city like New Orleans or Santa Fe or Albuquerque, there's an old city and there's a new city. And the same was true even during the time of of Jesus, there was an old section and there was a new section. And this is going to be important in just a moment. According to Josephus, Herod built a fort there and a winter palace there. And there was a certain native plant near Jericho that was known to have healing properties. And so this made Jericho a kind of Mecca for the blind. It was in Jericho in antiquity that Rahab the harlot saved the two Jewish spies and and tied a scarlet thread from her window and over Jericho's great wall. It was a city that was destined to be judged. And it says in verse 30, And behold, two blind men sitting by the road when they heard that Jesus was passing by cried out saying, Have Mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Now, what's interesting about this account, like I said, it's mentioned here, it's mentioned in Mark, it's mentioned in Luke. In Mark's gospel, it reports that Jesus is going 
to Jericho. In Luke, it says he was approaching Jericho, Luke 18.35. Here we read, as they went out of Jericho in verse 29. And so the skeptic, the critic, the person who, who wants to find reasons not to believe and, or even think about the story in its context go, I knew it, the Bible's full of contradictions. Matthew says he's going out. Mark and Luke are saying he's going in. Which is it? Again, the apparent contradiction is explained by what I just said. It really isn't a contradiction for anyone who just wants to scratch right below the surface. Clearly, they're all right. If I said I was going into Old Town in Santa Fe, or Albuquerque, or New Orleans, or I'm going through the old section, or I'm going through the city, there's an old portion and there's a new portion, and the contradiction is absolutely clarified. Matthew's referring to the old Jericho and its ruins, which can be seen to this day. The two other writers are making reference to them, to the modern contemporary settlement. Again, here is the point. Jesus is on his way through the city. He's followed by a large entourage in verse 29. In Mark's gospel, we learn the identity of one of them. In chapter 10, verse 36, Then they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples in a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road, begging. There are lots of reasons to be blind in the ancient world. You could be blinded through accident, birth defects, battle wounds. Many people were blind because of the transmission of sexually transmitted diseases in the birth canal. One other children suffered from a, a, a condition called trachoma. It was a virulent form of conjunctivitis which would attack healthy tissue until it would lead eventually to blindness. It may have been weeks or months for such diseases to result in total blindness, but we have every reason to believe that these two particular men were probably sighted at some point in their life because of their request. We want to see again. Blindness in the Bible is often a metaphor for people who are lost, for people who are trapped in darkness. Paul speaks of those in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Some people are blinded by pride like Naaman, the leper, who's spoken of in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 11. Remember, there's only one leper who's cured in the Old Testament. And he's a Gentile and a warrior. But we know that he was full of pride. Some had self-righteousness like the Pharisee in Luke 18. Some struggled with riches like the rich young ruler in Luke 18. Or worldliness like Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 10. Or covetousness like Balaam in Jude 11. Or, or self-will like Saul. Or, or prejudice like the religious leaders. Or lust like Esau. There's all kinds of things that can be in our life that can cause little 
specks of blindness that we don't see clearly or understand completely. Helen Keller, who lost both her hearing and sight, was once asked, isn't it horrible, isn't it terrible to be blind? And her answer is interesting. She said, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. She, of course, is speaking about spiritual blindness. And Jesus is living in a world where the vast majority of the people were spiritually blind. And it doesn't take a theologian to figure out that we live in that same kind of world. Think of all of the people who are blind to their sin. They're blind to sin's solution. They're blind to the truth. According to the Bible, people grope in the darkness, even though Paul argues in Acts chapter 17, verse 27, that God has appointed people to live in different places at different times, not so that they wouldn't know the Lord, but so that they would seek him with all of their heart. Paul argues that they should seek him wherever they are, even though he's not far from any of them. He says, in the hope that they might grope for him, though he is not far from each and every one of us. Paul concedes that in the ancient world, there were times of ignorance, but now God commands all men everywhere to repent in Acts chapter 17, verse 30. All of the reasons, all of the accumulated consequences of darkness and blindness, Paul says we should turn from our blindness. These blind men were sitting by the road and they're begging. And you'll remember that in the ancient world, there's no healthcare system. There's no welfare system. These men are completely at the mercy and the generosity of family. They're completely at the mercy and the generosity of friends. They're completely at the mercy of the generosity of anyone who's willing to take an interest in them. These blind men can't see, but they can be heard. And so they shout. They cry out to Jesus. By the way, quick question, Bible trivia. How many blind men or women or people, for that matter, in the Old Testament were healed? People who were totally blind, how many miracles of healing in the Old Testament? Of blindness. Guess. One would be wrong, three would be wrong. Zero. 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 There's a reason why you should understand this. This is remarkable what's happening. 
These men had heard that Jesus had healed many people, including the blind in, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 29 through 31. In other words, this had never happened ever before, but they had heard, they must have heard stories that this Jesus, this remarkable Jesus, there's something about Jesus that, he, that God has given them him the ability to do what people can't do. And so they cry out, and you'll notice they call him Lord. And they call him the son of David. These aren't just titles that are on Jesus's business card. These are messianic titles. These blind men have no physical sight, but they have profound spiritual insight. And I find this totally fascinating. So many people with the gift of physical sight, spiritually dark, empty, blind, unable to see. But these blind men see what so many seem to either ignore or consider sighted people destitute of spiritual sight, blind people, desperate for sight, but they see something that even those people closest to Jesus seem distant from. And look at verse 31, the condemnation of the crowd. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. This is a biblical, polite way of saying what you already know. Shut up. Look what their response is. Oh, you're right. You can see we can't. And so we're going to keep our mouth shut. No, but they cried out all the more saying, have mercy on us. O Lord, son of David, the blind men's cry caused some measure of frustration and embarrassment for the crowd. Just like in the very real world that you live in. Whenever anyone ever says, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong and I need help. I need hope. I need to know that there's something available to help me. The crowd's condemnation doesn't silence the blind men, but causes them to cry out even more. And we learn something right away, that people in the world can be callous and unkind and even cruel. In many ways, the multitude obviously are better off than the blind. They have sight, they have better clothes, they have a better job. To the crowds, these blind men were an annoyance, a hindrance, maybe even a, a handicap. But as F.F. F. Bruce has expressed it, the two blind men, his words, refused to be bludgeoned into silence by the indifferent crowd. And they cried out all the more, saying again, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. In the ancient world, many people believed that blindness 
was a curse from God for sin. We find that out in John chapter 9, verse 2. Do you, do you remember when Jesus is approached by his own disciples? And, and they say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you remember Christ's response? Neither this man nor his parents, but rather so that the glory of God could be revealed. Why am I so messed up? <laughs> Could it be because of this? Could it be because of that? Could it be because of this? Who knows? Any and all of those answers that you provide might be in part true. But what if there's some powerful reality that there is a God who has allowed you to experience some difficulties or some setbacks so that he could show up and be real in your life. Jesus doesn't allow fear or prejudice or ignorance to keep him from acting on their behalf. And Christian, sometimes people in the world will ask you to politely, please keep your mouth shut. But sometimes they're not so polite. Sometimes they'll use threat. Sometimes they'll use manipulation. Sometimes they'll use intimidation. If the passage tells us anything at all, we're going to do our first application in part. And that's right now when people tell you to shut up about Jesus, the Bible's advice, shout louder. Make a bigger noise. Express yourself even more. There's a song that we sing, cry out to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. Shout louder. When, when you cry out to Jesus, there might be those who'll tell you, please just shut up. The indifferent crowd will tell you, he has better things to do. God has better things to do. Or they might even intimate that Jesus doesn't care about you. He has his own mission to accomplish. He has his own destiny to fulfill. But again, this is in fact the point of the passage. The journey that Jesus is on is to go to Jerusalem to die for sin and to rise from the dead. Other religions suggest that your blindness is karma or election. You're either that way just for reasons that nobody understands or that's exactly what God wanted or just plain bad luck. There's a growing multitude that believe that Jesus doesn't care. That he won't help. That Christianity is a religion for fools. But even in this passage... Again, they will point to what they dream is contradiction. But all honest readers of the Bible will actually begin to ask and answer the questions that the text itself provokes. How can people who don't see, how can they see? 
The physically sighted demand that the physically blind stay silent. And it makes perfect sense to me that the spiritually blind demand that the spiritually sighted stay silent. But I can't even impress upon you enough. Open your mouth. Say something. Point people to Jesus. Three quick things. Number one, the blind men cry out. Number two, the blind men acknowledge the true identity of Jesus. He is the Lord. He's the son of David. He fulfills the messianic prophecies. And number three, the blind men, and this becomes an important point, persist in their cries in spite of opposition, in spite of resistance. And guess what? Opposition and resistance will come. My encouragement to you is to keep talking, keep speaking. And look at the compassion of the king in verses 32 through 34. It says in verse 32, so Jesus stood still and called them. And said, <laughs> what do you want me to do for you? This passage is so powerful. What is the response of Jesus to their cries and pleas? He stands still and he calls them. I love that. Jesus stops. Kent Hughes writes, the son stood still. When I read that, I couldn't help but think of what happened in the book of Joshua when the Jericho was judged and the walls came tumbling down and as God is calling the children of Israel to occupy the territory in order to overcome their enemies, God literally causes the sun, if you will, to stand still in the cosmos in order for God to accomplish the plans and the purposes that he has. And so here, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord of the universe, stands still to respond over the roar of the crowds. Jesus hears their desperate cries for help and responds. And this should cause each and every one of you to remember that prayer prompts attention and inquiry. I know you've done it in the past. Some of you are doing it even right now. Lord, are you there? Lord, do you know who I am? Do you know what I need? Do you even care what's going on in my life? Do you see me? Because I can't see you. I can't see you. But Jesus hears. He has compassion Jesus isn't willing for you to continue in the darkness or on the spiritual void of emptiness and darkness inside of you. Jesus pauses in his journey to the cross of Calvary, pauses on the way to his own humiliation and death for what? To heal blind beggars. Because the Lord of the universe who controls the universe controls all things. Mark's gospel at this point records that Jesus said, call him. Speaking of Bartimaeus. In our text, Matthew says, 
Jesus called them. And in Mark's text, in chapter 10, verse 49, it says, So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer. Rise. He's calling you. In verse 50, it says, And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. The reason why this is amazing, and I make reference to to Mark's account, is here is this man. He's on the side of the road. He gets approached, and he says, You've been crying out for him? Well, guess what? He's coming for you. Guess what? He's calling for you. Get up. He throws off the garment. And you've got to understand something. In the ancient world, you can imagine being blind. You don't have a whole lot of possessions. It could very well be that this cloak that he has or this robe that he has or this blanket that he has, whatever it is, whatever it is, Bartimaeus throws it off. This is an extreme gesture for a blind man. For a blind man to throw away his cane, to throw away the garment, to throw away the thing that's going to provide him with some sustenance and some hope. But the moment that he hears the news that Jesus is listening. He throws away his moth-eaten garment. And Jesus asks the question, what do you want me to do for you? Don't you love that? How can you not underline that and say, this is what I want him to ask. I want him to ask me this. Hey, what is it that you want me to do for you? And and I think we could go entirely in the wrong direction if we were so inclined. Our health and wealth friends might be tempted to say, Well, since you asked, uh, I want unlimited health and unlimited wealth. Mm, Pay the mortgage. Mm. Well, we laugh, but doesn't it make perfect sense that some people are going to go, make me rich, Jesus, beyond my wildest dreams. Jesus, make me popular. Jesus, make me beautiful. I love playing Beauty and the Beast with my grandchildren. They'll bring out the Beauty and the Beast. I go, I'll tell the girls, okay, I'll be beauty. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what, they go, no, Grandpa, you're not understanding how this game works. Make me famous. Make me powerful. What exactly is Jesus doing and why exactly is he asking this question? I'm going to suggest to you that I think that Jesus is asking the men to articulate their faith. Can they boil their request to a singular request? What's interesting about the text, the blind men know exactly what they want. They said to him, look verse 33, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. It's interesting to me that that specific request is going to result in a very specific answer. There was a woman named Rose Crawford 
and she had been blind for 50 years. I'm quoting the article. Quote, I just can't believe it, she gasped as the doctor lifted the bandages from her eyes after her recovery from delicate surgery in an Ontario hospital. She wept for joy when for the first time in her life a dazzling and beautiful world of form and color greeted eyes that were now able to see. The amazing thing about the story, however, is that of the 20 years of her blindness had been unnecessary. She didn't know that surgical techniques had been developed and that an operation could have restored her vision at age 30. The doctor said, quote, she just figured there was nothing that could be done about her condition. Much of her life could have been different, unquote. I couldn't help but read that and think about how so many people's lives could be so different if they only knew that they didn't have to stay in the dark, that they have been given an opportunity to see like they've never been able to see before. Then I thought about the millions of unreached people in the world unaware of the gospel, unaware that Jesus is the Lord, unaware that he's God's Messiah. How many people will, will remain in the dark, oblivious to hope, and so sometimes your cries are going to take two forms. Cries for yourself. Cries for others. In verse 34, so Jesus had, look at this, compassion. And touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes received sight. And note what the text says. And they followed him. The blind men barely get the words out of their mouth. Lord, I want to see. And Jesus has compassion on them. And note what it says. He touches their eyes. Could Jesus have just simply said, eyes? He could. According to the book of Colossians and in John 1.1, 1, 1, he's the creator of the universe. The same God that you read about in Genesis 1.1 1, 1, where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and, and the earth was about form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The, the writer of Colossians says that, that same Jesus, it's Jesus who created all things. He could simply speak. But Jesus does something far more intimate, far more personal. He touches their blind eyes. You know, it's interesting to me that the Old Testament speaks of Pharaoh's daughter, who when she saw Moses weeping, crying, a baby in a basket floating down the Nile, according to the text, she had 
compassion on Moses. The Bible speaks of God's compassion for his people in 2 Corinthians chapter 36, verse 15. Jesus is the shepherd, according to the scripture, who has compassion for the scattered sheep. He wants to save them in, my, in Matthew 9, 36. Jesus is the divine doctor. He's the great physician. He has compassion on the sick. He has compassion and he heals them according to Matthew 14, 4. Jesus, the miracle worker, has compassion on the hungry crowds. He supplies them with their need in Matthew chapter 15, verse 32. And now Jesus, full of compassion, restores their sight. It's a compassion that leads, that guides, that heals, that fills. The compassion of Jesus will include cleansing for the leper in Mark 1.41, comfort for a mother whose tragic circumstances has brought her to a place in her life where her son has died in Luke 10.33 in the text says he had compassion. He feels deeply about the human condition. Jesus illustrates compassion even for the ignorant religious leaders when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan and how this man is on a journey from Jericho to Jerusalem and he falls among thieves. But people were so busy going about their lives, doing their own thing, that they didn't have time to simply pause. No wonder Paul will later write to the Colossians. He'll say, as the chosen of God, then holy people whom he loves, you are to be clothed with heartfelt compassion. We don't simply read about the compassion of Jesus and go, oh, that's great. He's compassionate. There's an invitation for us to be compassionate. William Barclay writes, Jesus teaches that human need must always be helped. That there is no greater task than to relieve someone's pain and distress. And that the Christian's compassion must be like God's in what way? Unceasing. Other work may be laid aside even just for a moment. So that we can exercise compassion. There's no surgery. There's no bandage. There's no snake oil. There's no prayer cloth. There's no request from the blind man. What, what have you begged for today? Just put it in the coffer. And no. I want you to think about what you're reading just for a moment. They say we want to see. And the moment that they open their eyes. Because Jesus has touched them. What do you suppose it is that they see? What is it that they're looking at? They see Jesus. They see him. Is it possible that their face, that they that they moved from side to side and they saw the faces of the people who warned them, keep your mouth shut. 
Is it possible they saw Jericho, the city of roses, and dates and figs and palms dancing in the wind? Do they see the blue sky? Do they see the white clouds? Do they see like they've never seen before? Clarence Edward McCartney writes, quote, And for you and me, too, that'll be the greatest of all sights. When we awake from the dream men call life, when we put off the image of the earth and break the bonds of time and mortality, when the scales of time and sense have fallen from our eyes and the garment of corruption is put off and and incorruption is put on and we awake in the everlasting morning, that will be a sight that will stir us and hold us, unquote. I remember preaching this passage many years ago and it just so happened there was a blind person in the audience and they said, as crazy as this sounds, the blind person said, you may not be able to understand what I'm about to say, but I thank God for my blindness because I know that the first thing I will see in eternity is the face of Jesus. The men stood their eyes gaping, saucers filled with sight never seen. Mark tells us that Jesus said, your faith has made you whole. In fact, Jesus is telling him, Bartimaeus and his friend, you were right about your blindness. You were right about me. You were right to be persistent. You were right to call out. You were right to ignore the critics and the criticism who said to you, stay in the dark. And note, They followed him. Does that mean that they simply followed him down the road? It has to mean at least that. Is it possible that they followed him all the way to Jerusalem? Would you? Is it possible that they followed him throughout the week that's going to unfold and transpire? Is it possible that they're going to hear what's going to be said in the rest of Matthew's gospel? Is it possible that they follow him and they follow him to a cross that is going to result in his death? Is it possible that these men whose eyes are open that they're going to literally, not metaphorically, but literally watch him die? I think that there's a strong possibility. And they have to be thinking, how can this Jesus, how can this Jesus who's healed us, how could this even happen? How is this even possible? Someone with that kind of power and strength and favor Jesus could restore their sight, but seemed unable to save himself. And then they discover it only looked that way. It only looked that way. Because he is going to come back to life. And you see, there might come a time when you ask that same question. 
Jesus, I need something. What do you want from me? Could you please open my eyes? Could you help me see what I'm missing? Is it possible that something inside of your life has made it so very difficult to see what God wants you to see? Jesus hears the cries of those who are desperate and in the dark. You might even be frustrated because you prayed a prayer like this. Lord, I just don't get it. I just don't see. Would you like to? Jesus calls the blind and then asks the blind, what is it that you want? And note, he's motivated by compassion. And he touches them. And he heals them. And I'm going to suggest to you that in Jesus, we're given permission to make the misery of others our own. We are actually given permission to relieve the misery of others. And even as we do that in some remarkable way, we experience relief ourselves. Because for just a moment, we become a little more like Jesus. But guess what? The king's public ministry is going to begin in chapter 21. The private moments are over. The public moment has come. Stay tuned. Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you, Lord. Lord, it's fairly easy to ignore, neglect, the cries of those who are desperate and in the dark. Lord, we pray that we would not be like the uncaring crowd and we would just simply turn to our neighbor and say, will you please just shut up? Lord, we pray that in sensitivity and compassion, we would never, ever ignore a person's cry for help, especially as they're crying out to Jesus. And Lord, in that simple prayer, in that moment, Lord, when we ourselves say, I think maybe I'm not seeing clearly, that Lord, we would open our eyes, that we would be able to see what we weren't able to see before, that we would be able to care about what we didn't care about before, and that we would be able to take the journey with Jesus to the place where he's going knowing Lord that it's only going to lead to a temporary death but in the end Jesus is going to come back to life and live forever and that our darkness may be just for a moment but that we will see clearly forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.